Welcome to One to One. I'm Amelia, and this week I'm speaking with two designers who run a pretty non-traditional practice. You'll find them working among satellite images of galaxies and six-wheeled robots, and most of their clients are engineers. David Delgado and Daniel Goods are the visual strategists and designers behind the studio at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the NASA Field Center run by Caltech at the foothills of Pasadena, California. Their job is to essentially help JPL's engineers and scientists work through their own design problems using creative methodologies. They also help communicate the scientific research JPL is doing to a general audience by making things like travel posters for exoplanets and designing a giant listening station for orbiting satellites. David and Dan sat down with me to discuss their role in the JPL ecosystem and the invaluable role architects and designers play in imagining the future. David Delgado started off the conversation by describing a project they had done earlier to visualize the surface of a comet. It's really amazing that when you look at, you know, pictures of comets, like there's just um, beautiful images, especially there was one from European Space Agency of Halley's Comet, where you see the nucleus of the comet in the middle, and it's just spewing out this beautiful white tail and that's being, you know, put in the distance. And uh, sort of the wonder you get when you look at that, that you're sort of wondering, like, well, first of all, what is that? How does that work? Where does it come from? All of those things that drive all of the science forward. Because all it's funny, you talk to the scientists and they get like they're sort of wide eyed <laughs> and, you know, just really fascinated by those things. So they're driven by that same kind of wonder as well. And so we wanted to try to give that to people. And so knowing what it is right away wasn't very important to us. It's actually probably more important that you don't know what it is. And you wonder what the heck could that be? <laughs> and that potential of of that that could be and activating the imagination that way is something that is that's like, that's where the magic happens, it feels like. But every design choice was for a reason. And so one of the phrases that Jason had in his studio was making it forged by force. And so that that phrase, everything had to be forged by force. And so they made this amazing shell and then they water jet out these patterns that, that then they had to take giant hammers and then smash it and, and hit it really hard so that it'd make all these divots. And then they actually took a blowtorch and blowtorch the whole thing to Is make it dark. Is this all like emulating the actual early yeah, universe yeah, creation? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, these these comets are early on, they're all, they're all just like rocks that are hitting, uh, running into each other, big things of ice. And one of the things we never understood was that a comet, uh, we always think of Halley's Comet with a big tail on it, but a comet really is just a hunk of ice that when it gets close to the sun, it sublimates. So like uh, uh, dry ice, it goes from a solid to a gas. That's what, what happens when it gets closer to the sun. And then it, it um, leaves this sort of tail and it's actually just dragging the tail. It's not spewing it out. It's just kind of leaving it in space. And, and that's that's what, what we know of as a comet. And so, yeah, so we, we, uh, they, they, had to, they had to bang it. And, and the ice is, is actually really, really black. And that's why we wanted to uh, yeah, it's actually, burn it. Yeah, the blackest <laughs> known substance that scientists have discovered so far, <laughs> I believe. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I forgot how they rate that, but it reflects the least amount of sunlight out of anything else that, that they can see. So we've already gotten off to a very extreme level. To kind of back things up a little bit, I want to start talking about your individual backgrounds and how you came to JPL. As far as I can tell, you both would identify as visual strategists for JPL. Is that fair to say? Yeah. That's what our title is. That's your titles are. Okay. I just want to make sure. So David, let's start with you. Sure. Um, when did you first come to JPL? So 
In some ways, it, well, I'll tell my story, but um, I came to JPL because of Dan. My background was first in anthropology. I studied anthropology at UCLA, mainly because I was just deep, really interested in it. I think, you know, UCLA is divided up into two halves, sort of the science and the arts. I started out in biology and, and so I was walking my way up to the arts side the whole time, but landed in anthropology and I just had a deep love for human culture and the variation of the way that we experience life. And so spent some time down in South America after that, and then came back and went to the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena with the intention of becoming an advertising person. And so I went into the advertising program and I really love that very much because it was, everything was very focused on the conceptual nature of communication and always having a deep conceptual reason for why you're making choices. And that I think was something that really stuck with me, both anthropology and advertising. And so when I came into JPL, it was because Dan had started a, well, actually it was just him for a long time. He, and he'll tell you a lot more about this, but he was an artist in residence there and has an amazing story of how that actually happened. But I was just deeply interested in the ideas that people had at JPL. I had a uh, chance to come and hang out with Dan a few times and talk about ideas. And every time we ran into people, people had just crazy ideas about what they wanted to do. And to be honest, when I was at Art Center, I actually had no idea that JPL was there. And I hadn't previously been a huge science fiction fan or a space like, you know, fan. But the power of the ideas of what people were attempting to do when you just meet people at the coffee cart and whatnot was just like astounding and blew my mind. And I just, I just wanted to be around that, you know? And so when there was an opportunity to come and work there, I absolutely jumped on it because surrounding yourself with those types of ideas and those, that type of people is like really just remarkably uplifting and helps you to be tremendous. Like I just, you're sort of surrounded by this high level of creativity all the time. And so, you know, it's just, it's an exciting thing. And so that was about 13 years ago. I spent about six or seven years of that time doing something totally different. I love working with kids. And so I worked with the Mars program doing a project called Imagine Mars. And so I traveled around the country and worked with kids all over the place, but mainly fourth through eighth grade to get them to imagine what it would be like to live on Mars, look at the environment on Mars and think about it from a design perspective of how those constraints would change the way that you think about design, change the way that you create things in order to survive and actually ask more social sort of in psychological questions of what does it mean to be human? Mm. What is required to make yourself happy? And how could you fulfill those needs by creating something given these new design constraints? Sounds very much in line with the anthropological bent of like understanding what it means to be human when mm -hmm. you can't have your dog running around because he's got limited atmospheric conditions and that kind right. of stuff. Yeah. There's a little bit of a side and Dan, I want to get to the origin story shortly after, but in terms of like dealing with kids and Mars in particular, do kids just take it for granted that we're going to Mars? Well, are, are they just like totally it's happening and they're just like, that's what's happening. I'm going to be like vacationing on Mars in well, 60 years. It's so interesting you say that. So if you go back to 2005, what is basically when I started doing that, I would talk to kids and it was not an instant, like sort of this idea that that was happening, you know, and. But that also was the time when the Spirit and Opportunity rovers were really kind of getting going, you know? And so it was really amazing to watch sort of this shift, this cultural shift that was happening in the public mindset of what Mars means into in current culture. So it really started out as like this idea of, oh, it, it still remains the science fiction, this place that's too far away, it's too hard to get to. And it, and it was just astounding that the rovers were there. And when you talk to kids about it, uh, it was just, it would light this fire of imagination. And really, it's, it's had this sort of twofold effect because seeing all those images repeatedly over so 
long of a period of time, it really did sort of allow people to think of it like it was like their backyard. And and that was the whole intention of the Mars Outreach Program is to make it feel like that. And they did a tremendous job. But one of the things that happened to it is that it sort of became like an assumption that that's going to happen, you know? And in fact, I think it is. And what it did is um, the magic of empowering the imagination was transferred to the potential of reality. Do you know what I mean? And there's like a real difference there in that in that when you think it's actually really going to happen, it engages sort of a different part of your brain and maybe perhaps like a more realistic design problem solving part of your brain. Whereas previously, it was sort of a blue sky opportunity that allowed kids to have a whole huge range of ideas. And yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if that makes sense. But yeah, I think that when people think about it now, when I talk to kids, some of the kids think we're already there. <laughs> some of the kids think that that it's certainly going to happen. And it's a difficult choice to go there because when you compare Earth and Mars, Earth is it's going to win. I mean, it, Earth is amazing, <laughs> right? When you compare you those two. Yeah, yeah. You know, so... Um, uh, that might be a long-winded way to to answer the question of that. Yeah, I think that that now kids assume that we're going to be going to Mars really quickly. Because it's just it's so much part of the studio's work at JPL, or I should say, Jet Propulsion Laboratory for our listeners who aren't familiar. But to kind of create the stuff that then becomes part of the public consciousness, the images and the like, public uh, meeting places that can help kind of bring these ideas into the public consciousness in a way that is scientific but still accessible mm -hmm. and inspiring first and foremost. So Dan, that I hope that is a good segue into talking about how you first came to JPL and kind of what your creative background was before that. Yeah, so I went to Art Center as, as well. And uh, first day of orientation, David and I sat next to each other and I had lost my keys and uh, I needed a ride <laughs> to pick up the extra keys. And David gave me a ride and that started a, a great friendship ever since then. But I was studying graphic design, but I had an instructor there named Roland Young that really kind of broadened my perspective. So I, I thought that I was going to go work at a brand organization and, and do logos and posters and that sort of stuff. And then I did this little um, independent study with him and uh, it was for a, a grocery store in Eagle Rock. It's called uh, Galco's. Oh, ever been yeah. There? yeah, yeah. Famous so they, for like yeah. insane varieties of yes, sodas. Exactly. Yeah. So there's like 500 kinds of soda, but they're all in glass bottles. And up until recently, you know, it was really hard to find those. And, and it's way better if it's in a glass bottle because they use sugarcane and it's not sitting in aluminum for however long. And so uh, I started to play around with those and and did some kind of crazy things. He told me I need to play more because I was too I was uh, too conservative and and he said that was too practical and that if I would play I would take the impractical things that I make and make them practical. <laughs> and I, it was hard for me to quite understand what he meant at the time, but then I tried it. And so I ended up driving around town with bottles on top of my car to see if I could make music as it drove around. And uh, <laughs> it took a while and had some crazy experiments there, but eventually figured out how to do that with the idea of being able to stick them on a taco truck stand. So as the taco truck stand would drive around, it'd be like an ice cream truck coming and you would hear it from a distance and then figured out a way of making a pipe organ out of all soda pop bottles and, and a bunch of other kind of weird sort of things. And and uh, that really was sort of the beginning of getting this opportunity because uh, I ended up getting to have an internship at Caltech. 
So Caltech runs JPL for the government. And so at, at JPL, the things are owned by the government. Uh, the people are employees of Caltech. And um, so anyways, I ended up, there's an artist who was, who'd been working with scientists at Caltech for a number of years. And, and I showed him the project and he was like, great, you're going to do the same thing here as far as like the exploration, except I was going to come up with ways of visualizing lots of information. And I, I didn't really know about data visualization at the time, but uh, learned a whole bunch about it and became fascinated with, just like David said, all the big ideas that the various scientists around around had. And, and that really changed my whole perspective. I, I basically said, I'm not going to look for a job in the normal design world. I'm going to try to see if I can get to a research center of some sort. And uh, that was really hard. <laughs> it was really hard because I had this bottle project. <laughs> then I had this Caltech project and and a couple other things. But this is this was sort of the, the process that I want, wanted to have. And uh, eventually I got to meet the director of the Jet Propulsion lab and uh, had two seconds to sell myself. And, and I said, wouldn't it be cool to have artists involved in uh, brainstorming new missions? And he was like, that's great. And then he literally <laughs> turned around and left. And <laughs> big uh, time with big things to yeah, do. it was like, oh, you know, and like, come back here, come back here. But I'd been sending my resume in next day air because it's something that like when you get a FedEx, you don't just throw it away, <laughs> you, you open it. Right. And so uh, I was gone. My wife was around and she she went down to the store, but they didn't have any normal size envelopes. They only had gigantic, and I'm holding my arms really wide open here, a uh, really gigantic envelope. And so she sent my resume in this letter to him in that big envelope. And, and uh, that was really close to 2001, 9-11 time. And so they were probably like, what is this thing? So anyways, he sent it on to some people and and um, eventually they gave me six months. They said, could you do animations or something like that for us? And I was like, I'll do anything to work here. But see this bottle project? This is what I'm really passionate about. And he kind of chuckled and he, he looked at it and, and he I think he he saw that there was aspects of communicating in in different ways, and he said, "Okay, well, I don't know if this is going to work out. Uh, there's no one else like this around here. Uh, we'll give you six months and see what happens." And and so now that was about 14 years ago, and and so like David said, for most of that time, I was sort of kind of by myself. David David was doing Imagine Mars, and and we fed off of each other, but we weren't working together. But eventually, uh, about five years ago, I got to hire the first person, Jesse Kawada, who also went to Art Center, but she had a product design background and an illustration background. And she loves process. She loves research and um, just sort of thinking a little bit differently than than me. And she's also very poetic in, in the way that she shows stuff. And then we got to hire another person and another person. All of a sudden, the past couple of years, now there's eight of us. And so it's uh, it's been really exciting to watch the growth and just see all the different areas of JPL that that we've spread into. So I've never been a person that would enjoy doing one thing or even just like I think we try to explain it by we just like to solve problems and we don't care what they are. <laughs> you know, can we do can we solve uh, problems in a in a clear and poetic way? And uh, you can be clear and boring. Or you can be poetic and confusing. And so we're, we're trying to find that balance of being poetic and, and clear so that it's clear, but it also resonates with you on a way that, you know, something else may not. And so we're in, involved with everything from creating these uh, experiences that go out to the public, to festivals and different things like that, all the way to helping them brainstorm and think about their future missions. And that's it, it's really exciting and, and everything in between, whether it's working with security and facilities and, you know, all these different areas. It's been fun. We, we really cross cut across every aspect of JPL. 
So in terms of working on site with the studio, as it's called, um, in JPL, walk me through like a standard workshop session with, <laughs> um, say, a team of engineers working on whatever recent project you guys have worked on. Yeah, well, the projects always start a little bit differently. We, uh, there's no like normal way of going through. But I think we, we love to have brainstorms and, and a lot of it is just trying to figure out what is the essence of something. And that's where we want to start with. What What is the essence? What do people care about? Why should I care? Because I think for anybody involved in any complicated project, whether it's a gigantic skyscraper or it's a, a robot that's going to go to another planet or you're working on you know something in politics, when you're involved in something super complicated, sometimes easy to forget like the big picture because you have all these little nuts and bolts you got to think about and they're the same way and so they've been they've been working on something and and they've been talking to their peers who all kind of live in a bubble of their own you know and we're just like well why should i care about this <laughs> you know <laughs> it's, it's the single most important question i think that we ask is like well, why should we care why yeah. should anybody care and yeah. so this is is that is this also at a stage where the the project hasn't necessarily been funded yet? it's at all stages okay it's a, <laughs> Because yeah. like, so what, what then is usually the answer to that question? Is it because we need to know how much carbon is in our atmosphere or because we need to get yeah, they're, soil they're, samples Everyone's different, you know, mm -hmm. every, um, but, but usually it, it kind of is jarring, you know, at the very beginning. Because like, it's what a really hard, it's a hard question to answer, you know, I mean. And it, I'm imagining they get a little bit defensive of like, well, what do you mean this is? Well, sometimes is, we phrase it in yeah. a different way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it is a hard question to answer, you know, because it usually the types of problems people are dealing with are multi-layered have huge amounts of complexity to it and getting to that that very simple reason of like why this should be important is usually always there i mean we never make it up for anybody but it's sort of you know peeling all of those other layers away so that they can get back to that that sometimes takes you know a couple conversations mm -hmm. so can you walk me through what kind of process you guys try to not just necessarily teach but or walk through but kind of collaborate with for the engineers that come into the studio, because presumably they're coming in with some kind of issue or problem. And they're coming to you guys because they want a creative mindset and a little bit of a reminder mm -hmm. of that larger context to help drive new ideas. But how do you interact and how do you walk them through a design process yeah. that might be very unfamiliar to them in their own scientific process that they're sure. used to operating yeah. in? You want to talk well, about the posters? Uh, sure. Yeah. It's kind yeah, of an interesting one. Yeah. one. So we, um, there's the Exoplanet Exploration Office is at JPL. Exoplanets are planets around other stars. It's like just completely science fiction sounding straight out of Star Wars and Star Trek. I mean, it's been like the foundation of so many books and so many TV shows, but they're there, right? And it's a, it's a really amazing thing because they've only been really known for 20 years. And even that feels like a really long time. It still feels brand new to me that just the idea that when you look up in the sky, um, you know, if you look at the math, every star may have planets around it, you know, which is astounding. So I, going back to your question is, is so people, uh, how do people come to us and what were some of the problems that they may have is that this one started in, in kind of an interesting way because Exoplanet Exploration is at JPL. They were in a brand new building, beautiful new building at JPL. Um, a famous scientist, Sarah Seeger, was just received a, a fellowship. I think, yeah, she was coming to JPL and they actually just wanted something in the hallway leading up to their office to just pay attention to the fact that this was exciting, you know? And so they started with, a, it was sort of a very open type of, of problem that they gave us. And, and it was kind of funny because the architect who built the building and I'm embarrassed, I don't remember which one it was, but it's an amazing building, but it had outside of all these meeting rooms, you know, these empty poster 
these sort of spaces. And we'd always looked at those and be like, oh, nobody ever uses those. <laughs> there should be a poster there. Yeah. There's so many great space photographs. Yeah. So I should guys, them with something. Right, right. And so, you know, there's a whole, we had a whole range of ideas, but it, you know, just, it became kind of clear really quickly. It's like, wow, those things are real. Those places are there. And they have these huge variations, you know, like there are planets that have been cast out of their solar system and are floating alone in space. There are planets that are raining molten glass. You know, there are planets with like two stars. There are planets where the gravity is so intense that it pulls the mountains down into like a flat, you know. And so you look at all these deep, you're like, holy smoke, are you kidding me? These things are real. And the, uh, the most natural thing is what, what would it be like to go there? You know, and so we thought posters would be great, like travel posters. And we looked at this sort of the beauty of the the travel posters from the WPA era, you know, that um, the beautiful, simple style where you just show the place and that's it. And so then that started to resonate. Uh, we, we made the well, first. Well, actually, they, they <laughs> when, when you said, why don't we do travel posters? They were like, well, I don't know, maybe we should just show the, the spacecraft well, that's and, the thing and a with dot JPL, right? uh, because, that... <laughs> because we're, we're, we're not actually there and we don't want people to know that we're actually there. And, <laughs> oh, and yeah. So, so it took true. us a while to convince them that this is an awesome idea and people are going to love this thing, but they were hesitant. And so we really had to sell them on, on this idea. And so, so started to work on these various concepts and, and uh, figuring out, again, what is the essence of each one? What is one scientific thing that is really important about a bunch of these different places? And then how can we just show that in a really beautiful and, and sort of funny and, and interesting way? Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. And I think that that became really important to us is try to keep it simple. And especially in the conversations with the, the scientists and the engineers and the you know people running the exoplanet uh, program, there's just a, a real desire to talk about it all, you know? And so we had to really kind of limit ourselves with the constraints, just really kind of keep it very simple. We said, we're going to show, show a place, an environment. And we're going to show one aspect of that environment that is compelling about that place. And that became sort of the, the rules that we set for ourselves, because otherwise we'd kind of spin out of control into talking about a million things again. And we just said, well, just just one, only just one. And then it became really fun because if you're only going to talk about one thing, then you can show that in a beautiful way and something visually compelling. And also you have no images to compete with for a lot of these because the images that they're getting back are like spectroscopy or something. They're not actual. <laughs> Most of them, they don't actually even have pictures. Oh, actually, yeah. I mean, there may be only one that you actually see light of, right. of another planet. So you're so just told, here's the chemical operations happening. What they do is there's like a couple different ways of finding planets around other stars. And one is that uh, you just look at a whole bunch of stars every night or all, all the time. And then if one dims, then they think something went between you yeah. and it. <laughs> and then um, and if they keep watching it, they might be able to tell, oh, it dimmed on a regular basis. And maybe it's this size or maybe it's that size. Maybe there's multiple ones. And then the other way is you you just watch the star, and if it starts to wobble, then uh, it's because there's something large going around it and causing, uh, uh, with gravity kind of pulling it back and forth. So they don't have images of these places. All, all the things that you see in the news are artists' conception sort of things, but they usually don't get quite down to the level that, that we got. So. <laughs> yeah. And actually, it's kind of funny because the power of the, like, our, our imagination is, is not our imagination, but humans, right? So 
When you fill in the gap, it, it becomes really exciting. And this is one of those things that we're forced to fill in the gap. And we wanted to do it in a plausible way. So we were talking with the scientists and asking them, so what do you think it would be like based on your observations and all of these things? But really, like Dan mentioned, there's there's they haven't been it hasn't been verified and completely detected and all of that is still coming up. It's still in the future. But that kind of the the call of the future in that way allowed people to kind of imagine all of the potential that could be there. Mm -hmm. And we were sort of forced and wanted them to fill in the blanks on their own. And mm -hmm. I think that is actually what makes the Exoplanet program so incredibly exciting right now is it just feels like it's filled with so much potential because there's so many different types of places and environments that you're sort of forced to imagine what those things could be like because they're so foreign to anything that we're really used to thinking about, you know? And it's sort of back to the, the Mars question is, is in a way like in the, you know, in the early, you know, before Spirit and Opportunity got there, that sort of was the same thing about Mars. You, you could fill in the blanks a little bit more, but when you get into a certain level of detail, you're sort of confronted with a reality that you, you know, you are filled in for you. And that tension is something that architects are really familiar with, right? Because they're creating images all the time of things that don't yet exist, but they're focus is to create mood and a kind of spatial experience of something that a might not be so technically legible to a mass audience like you show an audience a architectural model and it might be hard for some people to really understand what it might like to, like to actually be in that space based on just that model but if you create some images that literally transpose the human into it directly and allow them that perspective and you can kind of grease the, the gears a little bit and like make that a more relatable image a more relatable reality and i think this is really you guys are totally at work in a level of science fiction that architects are really interested in and kind of help perpetuate in that they're creating these images of imagined futures that might be hard to sell <laughs> but might also be incredibly inspiring and purely by making that image to another group of people make it a reality or make oh, it yeah. seem possible. And it's really interesting with JPL in this regard because JPL does not do manned missions. So they are all about the robots. They are all about like what we can do without endangering human life. And simply that the reach of a robot is far long, far, uh, far, far, far <laughs> than, uh, than a humans can simply be. So you have this kind of technological humanistic schism of trying to get people to really relate to this stuff while also conveying to them the beyond human reach that we can get if we just invest in these kinds of robotics. So I want to hear you guys talk a little bit about that creation of science fiction and how you guys relate to that in your work, whether you are consciously aware of that at all, at all times or you're kind of just like dealing with the aftermath of it. Um, it's really interesting because this idea of thinking about the future is it's difficult, right? Like I was in the process of making the posters and we're doing another project right now that's sort of imagining the future based on what JPL is doing now. Like what, what kind of future could that create? And when you do that, you're sort of forced to think about, well, what would the future be like? And it's really difficult because you sort of find yourself, you know, clinging to certain things that might create a future and the potential of of the future is like infinite, right? And so I think it's really hard to imagine the future without sort of anchoring yourself to certain elements of the present or the past to help fill in the imagination to allow for those things to feel more concrete or more realistic. And it's an interesting thing. And so I don't, it, how people deal with that on like a like the people involved in like foresight and that take it like very seriously that do that for companies and things is, is beyond me. But I think what we're sort of using that for is more in the sense of inspiring the present than creating the future. 
you know? And so, but in, in that way, it's also like a powerful tool because if you can, and it's sort of something we all do all the time, of course, you know, you think about, oh, well, this, this is going to happen and people plan for things and you have strategies of what you're going to do. But just that notion of imagining what can become and visualizing that thing. And it really kind of empowers the present in a way that, you know, it sort of adds fuel to the fire of your desire of what you're doing. And so that's something that that's really kind of nice. And and we're doing a project right now that actually is is relating to that sort of that world of of the posters. But we're sort of imagining if that world were existing that was based on the things that JPL were doing now, JPL and NASA, and what would that lead to? So we wanted to have a little bit of fun with it. And we we're thinking like, well, what if what if that world were true? What if that world of travel posters actually existed? What if people could do all kinds of other things? What would they be doing? And since we're, you know, humans, we have, it's more than just careers and work and it's about interests and, you know, what would people be interested in? And, and so we thought, well, what kind of clubs and societies would people join? And could we create something that would show that world through the mech, the device of, of emblems and patches, sort of almost like logos from the future that we could bring <laughs> back, you know? And, um, and that would sort of these, this archive from the future of, of artifacts that would tell about that world. And yet at the same time, talk about what JPL is doing. And so we're having a lot of fun dreaming that up right now. And, um, yeah, hopefully we'll, that will all work out to be given <laughs> next year. Where will that be? Will that be on the JPL campus? Yeah. You know, if it works out, then it would be for uh, the JPL employees. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Which is actually kind of a really fun thing because we never, I guess I never imagined that part of our job would be sort of encouraging the actual spirit of JPL itself internally. And I think that to some extent, that was like an unforeseen side effect of the travel posters is that, you know, we had this big brainstorm in the studio, invited all kinds of people there from interns to, you know, the people who were in charge of landing the rover and this huge wide range of experience and just ask them like, why do you like working at JPL? Like, what is it that keeps people here? Because it's not the money, right? <laughs> it, it's something else. And, and it was just this really common shared view of like, doing things for humanity, like exploring for humanity. And that just the, the feeling of being able to be a part of that sort of like being a wonder junkie, or you're doing these things that these really have this like a really deep sense of meaning and that sort of shared across the lab. And so yeah, it just, you know, if we can use imagination to help like support that and really kind of help to make that grow, that is something that is pretty fun and fun to do. And so we hope to do more of that. It's really nice to think that despite the fluctuations in, say, a certain presidential term that NASA gets maybe less attention or more attention or refocuses its attention from one thing to the next, that in a way everyone at JPL is susceptible to that is, you know, they have their own dreams and excitements of what might happen in the next 20 years, but they also have to deal with the very much real, <laughs> grounded economic and political realities that affect what is actually possible. So to have kind of like an in-house, I'm trying to think of what the, uh, like, casual the friend who always is able to like bring you out of the dumps or like re-inspire you <laughs> or something like that um to have that in-house and so i, I want to bring it back though to the collaborations that you have within the studio where you're working with engineers or you're working with these scientists what are some of the kind of difficulties that you run into in just either communication or just like roadblocks that in the course of discussing a project you come to and how do you work to resolve those hmm um let's see I guess, you know, we, we all have different languages and we've all built up 
walls <laughs> around our own uh, industries. And and so we, we try really hard to not use any weird jargon and, and that sort of stuff, just use like normal everyday language. And so sometimes, you know, we don't understand what their their jargon is. And, and so we're, we're always asking, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Because uh, we figure if we can understand it, then we can we can hopefully help other people understand it as well. But really, I mean, I don't know. I, I find uh, sometimes we can be in the room and we don't have to do anything. Just us being in the room, they feel permission to maybe think differently than they normally do. And it's fun to watch them do that because they get like all excited and they start to talk about stuff and, and, and they kind of feel a little bit of freedom because they're, they're with the artists or you know, they're <laughs> with the designer uh, folks and we're with those creative folks. And so, um, there's so also another what, way to phrase that is yeah. we get to ask a lot of dumb questions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which they should be very good at fielding if they're yeah. in that position. Yeah. Yeah. Permission to ask stupid questions or to, uh, yeah. They just start talking because they get the permission. Well, oh yeah, well just um just that they are super creative in this world as well, and in, in in the type of stuff that we do. And many times we'll we'll be doing a brainstorm like, wow, man, that he's coming, they're coming up with way better ideas than us, you know. <laughs> and so actually, the way some of our process is, we don't really know all the details and stuff, and so we kind of throw things out there, and they'll be wrong, but then they'll look at it and they'll analyze it and they'll find something that's right about the wrong. <laughs> you know, and they'll be able to figure out something that we never would have imagined. Can and you, you, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I'm, just, like I, I, I'm, I'm probably going to have a hard time doing that <laughs> no right problem. now. But I, I know that when we've done various um, proposal cover images for them, you know, we'll kind of give them a whole bunch of different ideas. And, and um, you know, just since we don't quite understand, we're wrong. Maybe you yeah. should talk about the proposal process because that's pretty cool, too. Yeah. So uh, NASA, there's a bunch of scientists outside of NASA that get together and they kind of give the uh, sort of make uh, the case for what the United States should do in space over the next 10 years. And so that's called a decadal uh, survey. So every 10 years, they kind of relook at this thing. And then they uh, then they give that to NASA. And so NASA then has, you know, a plan of these are the things that we should be doing. And then NASA says, okay, well, let's look at this idea. Uh, can people give us ideas for for this, uh, this general category? And so a whole bunch of people send in proposals and JPL sends in a whole bunch of proposals. And so that means that we're working with lots of different teams thinking about all sorts of different ideas. And so we work with them on... You know, normally they'll just put like a, a cover that's like of a piece of hardware on it. And and when everyone does that, they all look the same and they're all kind of boring. And and they also don't tell you why, going back to the question of why should I care? <laughs> you know, just looking at a piece of hardware, they all sort of, especially spacecraft, they all sort of look alike and you don't really know what, what what's important about it. And so so in asking them, you know, why why should I care about this, then we can totally change, you know, what what sort of imagery is on there. And so one one example was we had uh I'd been through a whole one hour brainstorming session, just trying to understand what the heck this person was talking about. I didn't really understand. I was just about to leave. And some person on the other side of the table kind of said, oh, what it's really like is it's like what this spacecraft is going to do is going to orbit the earth and it's going to look at all the trees. And basically it's going to help us understand the breathing, the lungs of the earth. And I was like, oh man, that's awesome. You know, I can do something <laughs> with that. And so, so basically I made lungs out of trees and then I put a little bird from Australia or from uh, Brazil because they're uh, working with the Brazilians. <laughs> and so it kind of tied it in. But when your first look was lungs and then your second look was, oh, it's made out of a bunch of trees. And then, then you know, it, it all made sense, and 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 it was something that was special and unique to them, versus just showing a spacecraft going around the Earth, which is you know like everyone else's. So that's that's a bit of the process. 
But it took that person, like I didn't come up with that, you know, <laughs> took the guy who was sitting across who who wasn't the person who was telling me all about it, just someone else sort of listening in. And and uh, and so I, I love that when people kind of throw out those yeah, little it's gems. Of, yeah, it's a truth, you know, mm-hmm. it's something that's true. It's exactly what they want to do. That's the reason why they're doing it. And, you know, Dan came up with like a really poetic way to do it that, that was very compelling. When you look at it, you're like, oh. Yeah, I get it. So you don't even have to read the proposal and you already know that it's about that subject. It's almost know? like creating a system or like a um, a meme for JPL or for like this these memes as in not a thing you share a lot on the internet, but as something that is like entirely contained idea yeah. in an image that communicates something that yeah. everyone understands. That's what that means, yeah. regardless of language or so. And that's a pretty heavy mantle to, to bear for an organization <laughs> like like JPL. Why don't you guys kind of round things off? Can you tell me a little bit about some of the projects you have currently ongoing? How about the one at the Huntington? Okay, so the one at the Huntington is a project that deals with earth science. There are Friday 19 earth science satellites circling earth. Most people don't know that, you know, when you look up at the sky, you see the sky, right? Clouds, blue, rain, whatever it is. <laughs> what you don't see is a bunch of satellites swirling around. And so this goes back to a longer story, which is it's kind of funny. I, I think it was like my second day at JPL. Dan called me up and he, he said, hey, do you want to you go hop on a plane and go to Goldstone? <laughs> and I felt, like, <laughs> I felt like I was getting a call from James Bond or something. And I'm like, Goldstone? Yes. What? What is that? <laughs> And where's the plane? <laughs> yeah. And when do we go? It's actually a rocket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so uh, we went out there and, you know, we did, it's, so Goldstone is part of the Deep Space Network. Deep Space Network is a series of, of radio antenna that is, are pointing out into space and allows for the communication between Earth and all of the different spacecraft in the solar system. And the, the irony is that when you go out there, I mean, there's just a huge amount of activity that's going on all the time. There's three main locations around the world. You have uh, one in California, one in Australia, one in Spain. And uh, there are space like that because as the world turns, it's sort of an equidistant type of thing. So you can continuously stay in touch with all of the different spacecraft that are out there. And so JPL owns this, this network and it's very, very highly active all the time. In fact, getting onto the schedule to talk to your spacecraft is like a pretty serious deal. But the irony is you go out there and it's just like just perfectly quiet. You know, you go to the middle of the desert and, you know, there's very little, you know, uh, noise pollution anywhere, but with just a tremendous amount of activity. And so that began like a really um, compelling conversation between Dan and I that turned into, you know, just a it was a fruitful conversation. And, you know. yeah, yeah. So just thinking about all this information going back and forth and, and it's one thing, you know, like we have these different visualizations that show on a screen that, you know, here's the earth and here's a spacecraft and that's where it's at. And, and it's really cool to be able to know where things are, but it doesn't give you the visceral sense of where they are, you know, cause, cause it's all on this 3d globe inside of a screen somewhere, but, but it's not like real life around you. And so we love this idea of like closing your eyes and, and listening to a bird fly across the sky and you can hear the exact location of, of that bird. And we're wondering, you know, is there a way in which we could close our eyes and, and listen to the exact location of these satellites that are all out there? And so that was a long time ago. That was like 10 years ago. And then we had this opportunity to do um, a project at the World Science Festival. And NASA really wanted people to know that we study the Earth. And so they was like, oh, why don't we do that project? You know, and, and uh, just about six months earlier, I had met a guy uh, named Shane Mirbeck that works for Arup 
which I think a lot of your audience would probably know of Arup. And, and so it's a big engineering firm and, and they do a lot of places where, where uh, what do you call it? The, where, where you have concerts and concert halls and that type of thing. And, and uh, I just met him after a, after a, a conference and had a couple seconds to talk. And, and he said, oh, I'm an audio engineer. And I was like, oh man, you know, I've always wondered if uh, I, I know that there are these rooms where there's speakers all around you and you can, you can place sounds all over the place. And, and I always wanted to do, uh, you know, this thing with uh, where we could listen to the location of satellites. And he looked at me and he said, I sit in a room like that all day long. <laughs> so that's what he does for Arup is he, he will let you listen to what your building will sound like before it's built which is really cool. And then you can compare it to lots of other buildings and change things. And so anyways, that was like the first puzzle piece. And then uh, then this opportunity to do something about Earth came up. And uh, so we thought, oh, we're going to do this, the sound insulation. And then David had this, this uh, great insight of like, man, how do you talk about a sound insulation where people want to come? You know, like if, if it's going to be written up in the New York Times and they have a picture where are they going to show? They're going to show a bunch of speakers. You know, that's going to be kind of boring. And and as much as we like the, you know, techie look of it, it's not something that someone's going to drive across town to go see. And so so it needs to be this object of wonder. And uh, then then we ended up calling up Jason Klamaski again at, at Studio KCA and, and kind of gave him these constraints where this the constraint of this dome was really important for where all the speakers could be exactly Placed, and then the area around it had to be like 50% transparent so that the sound wouldn't reverberate in funny ways. And so we kind of gave them these constraints and then they went back and they they came back with this amazing, they came back with a few different ideas, but one of them was just really poetic and, and it was this, the seashell. And so as you remember being a kid, you go to the ocean, pick up a seashell and you hear the ocean inside. And so the ocean isn't actually in there, but <laughs> but you you think it's in there. So ours uh, ours is a big shell that um, you don't hear actually what's in space, but you 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 hear the exact location of these satellites. Yeah, and I think that is something that well Jason does very well is that he thinks about things conceptually, and he absolutely created a space where it took all of the the fundamentals of the concept of what we were trying to do and brought it to life in a way that we never expected. And it was just wonderful because when people look at that shell, there's just such a draw to go in it. Sometimes you don't know it's a shell, but it's certainly something that feels like it has fallen from another world (laughs) and is just incredibly compelling and draws you in. And um, when we talk about just the notion of, of working with architects. I mean, that is something that is sort of like a dream is to have an idea and have it brought to life in a way that remains true to the concept and remains true to the intent of what we're absolutely trying to do, but visualized in a way that that's just almost, it's like an emotional visceral sense when you're in there. It's something that's almost hard to describe because what he had done is he's um, sort of used this notion of looking at the sky. And it's almost like when you would look at the North Star and you have like a camera and you keep the the lens open and you see the, the streaks of the stars as the world rotates. So he just took that, just the simple idea of orbiting and spinning and played that out through his design, where also working with uh, the constraint of sound of having it be 50% transparent, right? So it had to have a bunch of holes in it, but those holes were done in a way that really kind of captured that feeling of motion. So it's actually really strange. It's a perfectly solid, still piece of metal that feels like it's spinning. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, And yet at the same time, when you're inside, it allows you to see outside. 
to the sky and to all the environment around it. And so what we're really happy with is that this this exhibit is now at the Huntington Gardens, which is the best place we've ever had it before because it's surrounded by nature. And that's really important to us because the whole the whole piece is about understanding that there are satellites moving above your head constantly, looking down at the earth, helping us to understand how the earth works and how the earth's systems interact with each other. And the Huntington seems to have all of those systems gathered from around the world in different gardens. And so it just really is the perfect fit to be able to hear those things and see through the dome itself into that whole world. So we have exoplanets, we have Mars, of course, we have the various satellites orbiting Earth. What are some other projects or some other outer space references (laughs) (laughs) that you guys would be like a dream project for you to work with? Are there certain things that really peak your imagination? Well, right now, uh, Voyager. So uh, Voyager had two spacecraft, Voyager 1 and uh, Voyager 2, and one of them is beyond the edge of the solar system. And it launched almost 40 years ago. So there's going to be a 40th anniversary coming up. And so we're trying to develop some ideas around that, that that could be really poetic. And and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's this object that's, you know, the furthest human made object, you know, it's just way out there and that it's been working for 39 years. You know, there's not too many electronics uh, that still work that way. And so it's sort of, and plus it has this golden record on it. Right. So, so for, for listeners who aren't yeah. familiar, the Voyager is also the satellite with Carl that Carl Sagan worked on that has this kind of message mm-hmm. to potential yeah. outer space uh, yeah. entities that might come across it to kind of a deliver a message of goodwill, which and yeah. it has music inscribed yeah. on the record. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's record and it's sort of a time capsule of the, the best of humanity at, at that time and all, all all encoded on this record. And so it's a really beautiful concept and, you know, it's, it's going out there. And so the question is, uh, that was 40 years ago. The world was a certain way at that time. Uh, now, with all the technology that's happened over the past 40 years and, and just the way we look at like we didn't we didn't know about our solar system system the way we know about our solar system now. We didn't have, you know, all these uh, amazing images of, of Earth the way that we do now and, and understanding our fragility and, and those types of things. And so how would we how would we redo the Voyager record? You know, it probably wouldn't be a record, it'd be something else. And, and what would we talk about? And so it's been something that we've we've all been kicking around. And then um, then we're also trying to help create, uh, well, so uh, trying to help different w- uh, missions win their sort of proposals so they can become a mission in the future. And so there's um, missions to Venus and uh, missions to asteroids and other types of things. And so we're in the process of uh, actually it'll be next week, <laughs> the next two weeks that that uh, those will happen. So there, there's these big presentations and we uh, they're like a whole day presentation with like a hundred people involved and and trying to help them choreograph those. And, and David and I, that was the first job that David had when he got to JPL's work. And uh, we worked together with the Juno mission, which is just arrived at Jupiter on 4th of July. So it's it's really cool to be able to be involved in, in, in it from the very conception or the very beginnings of trying to communicate the mission. And then it became a mission because because NASA selected it and then it finally got there. And so it's it's cool to see those things. Well, it's, it's super inspiring work and um, very interesting to, to have you guys in the studio to talk about it. I really appreciate you coming in. It was great to talk to you guys both. Great. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so very much. much. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Thanks for listening to Arconnect Sessions one-to-one with David Delgado and Daniel Goods, visual strategists at JPL's The Studio. Dana Lavoinov edits our podcast and Matt Skillings composed the music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of one-to-one. New episodes come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the podcast, 
please consider leaving us a review. We are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, and you can email us at connect at arcconnect.com. On a personal note, I've got to say that David and Dan's work and everything happening at JPL could be seriously threatened under President-elect Donald Trump. Much of JPL's federally funded research is focused on what's happening to our own spaceship Earth, measuring carbon emissions, sea levels, and temperature rises. In short, the data that evidences climate change. Trump has called climate change a Chinese hoax, and while he has flip-flopped on his exact policies for scientific initiatives, it's imperative that JPL's work can continue. Thanks again for listening to One to One.